Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about hip fractures, a really broad topic and I'm going to try and touch on our different facets of uh, prevention, immediate rehabilitation, some surgical considerations, and then uh, long-term care, all the different places that we as therapists are involved. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm a physical therapist with the Medical University of South Carolina. I've been in practice for about 23 years, specializing in orthopedics. I work primarily in some of our outpatient clinics, uh, fitness setting, general outpatient office. I um, still do work as well uh, in acute care, inpatient rehab, a lot of the different places where we will encounter folks um, dealing with hip fractures, both on the preventative side, um, the rehabilitation side, and then long-term with balance training, strength training exercise, trying to reduce long-term incidents, long-term problems that can develop with this. Our outline for today, um, we're going to go over the incidence of hip fracture, mortality rates at first, cover some risk factors, uh, both modifiable, non-modifiable, uh, mitigation of those, uh, therapy roles in those, the acute, can- acute management of fracture when it does happen, surgical decisions, patient assessments, kind of what the medical team's um, going through and what they're planning and, and how decisions there, what they can do for the long-term outcomes. I'm going to cover the hospital rehabilitation phase and timelines and then criteria for transition to further rehabilitation. Go over the whole recovery timeline, how long it takes to, to regain strength, regain balance, trying to build confidence, and some best practice interventions there. And then the long-term prognosis, ongoing therapy, uh, fall programs, fall recurrence reduction, all of those. Most of the things I'll cover today are, are based on some, some guidelines recently, both from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the American Physical Therapy Association, the American Academy of Cardiologists. So a lot of, of guidelines, resources has gone into these to streamlining how we can most effectively handle folks here. It's estimated that there are over 300,000 hospital admissions just in the United States. And unfortunately for many of the folks that suffer a fracture in their hip, um, it can be fatal, both within the first few months, and all-cause mortality is rated as high as 30 to even 35 percent um, within the subsequent year. And usually that's a result um, of multiple, multiple reasons, but it's their, their pre-morbid status, I mean, medical complications, age, frailty, and then this general not getting a lot of mobility back. I mean, maybe they already were at a fairly low level to begin with, um, and then it goes even further declines. Um, there's a lot of fear, anxiety, um, pain that can happen here, and sometimes people they don't get their confidence back. And all too common, the, the story is, you know, you have a, an elderly woman, typically female, maybe um, early 80s, possibly some, some cognitive deficits, early dementia, already needing a little bit of assistance with care, maybe in a, a facility, assisted living, um, or living on their own. Um, they suffer the, the hip fracture. It can be an accidental fall. A lot of times it's osteoporotic 
the more pathological kind of fractures. And then just the subsequent um, weeks, months, not getting a lot of mobility back, and then they get into a later season of the year, it becomes, you know, cold and flu season, and then they you know, contract pneumonia, um, and that ends up, they, they die. Um, I've seen it happen, unfortunately, many times. I'm sure many of you have as well. That's what we're going to cover today is, is prevention, first of all. Um, so what are some risk factors for it? Of course, th those are pr pretty commonly known. It's more often, more often females, um, certainly men, but it runs about 80% of females that develop osteoporosis. Um, Caucasian, fair skin, usually smaller bone structures um, throughout their lives. There certainly can be some, some dietary things that go in there, um, reactions to medications, maybe ladies that have had to go through chemo, um, hormone replacements or lack thereof, things that change uh, their, their bone density throughout their lives. As far as mitigation and reduction of the, the modifiable risk factors, of course, you know, gender, um, ethnicity, body structure, of all things, those aren't really modifiable. But there are a number of medications that are recommended. I mean, it can be all the way back to uh, Fosamax, and certainly um, not without its controversy now. Um, some of the side effects, long-term things with that. It was used for a long time. Ladies would use um, different injections, uh, now recommended based on bone density. Proli is a, a commonly used one. Um, and that's the medical management. Of course, you know, calcium, vitamin D throughout your lives. Um, but the other, the big one is is resistance training. We, all, we know now you know, long-axis bone stress, weight-bearing exercise, walking um, with resistance, um, resisted training with, with weights or with objects you can do in the home, but actually trying to increase the, the stress across primarily the hips, the, the femur being the biggest long bone in the body. You know, fractures mostly happen here in the wrist, uh, the spine, the femur, so ways that we can load the spine safely and the hips as well in a weight-bearing kind of way for strengthening, whether it be incorporating weights um, throughout their lives is, is the key. And actually, I always like to say that the, the reduction of risk factors for osteoporosis should start with, with young girls, um, especially 15, 20, in your teenage years, 20s, 30s, starting then both with diet, um, recognizing if, if you are going to be at a risk. I mean, it's, it's very easy to say, okay, you look at your mother, look at your grandmother, look at your aunts, you know, look at their body structures, their types, as their genetic things that's going to predispose you. And you start earlier in life both with diet intake of uh, calcium, vitamin D, healthy diets, um, and then regular exercise. And I'm a, I'm a proponent of strength training for younger women. I do. I work a fair amount of times in a, uh, a gym here. We have a clinic inside of a YMCA, and I look around at who's exercising, and it's been nice to see the last few years more of an incidence of, of younger females, you know, teenagers, even their 20s and 30s, actually doing some resistance training. Um, not, I mean, treadmills are great. Stairmasters are great. Ellipticals are great. But a lot of the prevention of these things long-term, I think, comes earlier in your life and incorporating resistance training um, early and, and then maintaining it. So I love to see young ladies actually doing some squats, you know, doing some deadlifts, um, step aerobics kind of things, but adding some weight to it. Um, walking is certainly great. Um, I think you need that resistance component, a little more weight that goes in there. And it can be, if you don't like gyms, it can be, you know, hiking, but, but put a backpack on when you hike, you know, get a backpack, put some weight in it, um, maybe water bottles or whatever you want to use, but add, add weight to it. So you're adding a little bit of 
vertical compression, both to the spine and to the hips when you go walking or go hiking. So anything like that where you can be creative, it can be, it can be high tech, it can be low tech, um, to add a little bit of stress across the bones to help improve the density throughout their lives. So those are certainly some things that people can do individually. It's just general lifestyle components, general fitness. But maybe they get a little older and uh, didn't start or didn't do a lot of those things when they're younger. And then um, maybe they're in their 50s, 60s, and starting to, to see some, some evidence on maybe some medical testing. You know, their, their T-scores are, are dropping a little bit. And they're like, you know, the, the bones are thinning. And what can we do? Again, it's never too late to start some resistance training there. Um, this doesn't have to be super heavy. It certainly can be. I think it could be safely done with proper coaching, um, but you can still do resistance training then. Maybe your effect won't be as great as you started younger, but it's you know better late than never. And then you start to deal with um, balance components, um, delayed reaction times, ankle strength, hip strength, and just some general confidence um, in moving. Um, simple, simple clinic exercises that we can you know teach people with sit to stands. Um, balancing, you know, heel-toe stance, single-leg stance, uh, multi-directional kind of things. And these can easily be implemented in a clinic. They can be taught lots of ways to do it at home. If somebody's got a flight of steps, um, great way to work just on stepping up and down and making that exercises, um, chairs, resisted things. I love to incorporate medicine balls, kettlebells, um, or any kind of a weight you can come up with at home. I, I routinely tell people, and you can do some, some lifting and carrying at home, again, with a backpack with weights in it. I'll take grocery bags and put cans in them. I'm carrying those. A lot of functional everyday things that, that don't require a lot of equipment. You don't go out and buy, you know, fancy machines, things like that. Usually you, you look around your house, you can find some ways that you can add resistance there. Um, and adding the resistance, and you can you know, put things in one hand or both hands, whether it be kettlebells, um, weighted bags. Um, you can put them in the hands because you want to challenge balancing. You can make them work on lateral stepping. Um, stepping up and down, balancing things, or you could go you know, full on to you know all kinds of balance master devices. There's all kinds of in clinic things that we can do um, where they're appropriate to work on challenging their balance in multi-directional um, angles. One of the big things there, I think, that was actually just instilling some confidence um, in, into people, both men and women, um, to make them a little more secure. Certainly, as things progress, as maybe the the, the use of assistive devices. Um, canes. I like to use uh, the trekking poles for people as well. I think those are a great way that you can um, do do balance and you can be outside walking. Um, there sometimes for people I I come in I run into it's a maybe a little more socially acceptable to use those. They think it looks uh, cooler and more European. You know if I I have like a sixty year old lady who she doesn't want to be seen with a cane. Um, certainly don't see anything walker. I can can think of a number of incidents uh, throughout my career where I've uh, suggested walkers to people and the, the people would just flat refuse to use them um, because mostly they said it made them look old and they didn't want to do that. So I, I can be sensitive to that. I think that we need to be... So sometimes the, the trekking poles, and they used to be more expensive, but now I tell people you can find them online for you know, $20, $25 a set and I use those. One of them or two of them helps with posture. You're a little more upright. Um, they're, they're used that way. I mean, walkers and canes tend to, people tend to stoop and lean over and we want to have them, you know, a little more vertical, uh, weight bearing through the spine and nice upright postures. So a lot of things that can happen there, um, preoperatively. 
So there, to summarize that section, I'd say risk factors primarily include certainly age, low bone density, that's calculated with, with T-scores, uh, bone density tests, and then a general impaired balance are the, the big three um, that are risk factors. So now we'll go ahead and say, unfortunately, the, the fracture has happened, um, what we do acutely with it. Um, careful to remember here that but fracture is both a sign and a symptom of osteoporosis. And unfortunately, sometimes it's the first one where they define it. Yeah, you actually have osteoporosis. I mean, you certainly have genetic factors. And, 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 and people, ladies in particular, they know, you know, you know, grandma had these problems and my mom did and kind of is a genetic thing in the family. And um, I always say I can tell just by kind of looking at somebody, they're going to be osteoporotic. You know, they're going to be fair skin, small bone structure, uh, maybe not real physically active. Uh, maybe not a lot of uh, good muscle tone and muscle strength. Um, a little, you know, just kind of the, the the little old lady you look at, you can you can tell. And I'm a, you know, you're afraid to to do too much sometimes with the older ladies because you can tell this is you know osteoporosis waiting to happen. So whether or not they had testing throughout their lives or, or were taking steps to do, to um, prevent it, once they have the fracture, um, and depending on where it is, of course. Um, that's usually a, both a sign and it's a symptom that, yeah, it's guaranteed. Sorry, ma'am, you do have osteoporosis. So now what happens? Um, they're at the hospital. Uh, typically, these, these injuries, they occur at home. Um, they, they've, they've fallen. And always the thing was, did the, did the fall cause the hip fracture or did the fracture call the, cause the fall? I'm going to tell you, most of the time, it's just the fracture happened um, and that made them fall. Of course, depending on where it is and and there you can see, I mean, if it's a combinated fracture of more of the trochanter where they landed on it, you can see that. But if they spiral or they're intercapsular fractures, you know, femoral neck kind of fractures, it's usually the fracture happened and that's what made them fall down. So now here they are um, in the hospital, you know, in, the, in the ER. Um, it's pretty easy to diagnose the fracture. The ER positions, the EMTs, they already know it. Usually the leg will be uh, retracted, externally rotated, and of course be, be severe pain there would be a mechanism. And so what's going to happen there? So we start optimizing right away. And at least what, what, what we have and what most larger hospitals, I mean, smaller hospitals too, have pathways and it's pretty structured on what's going to happen here. Everybody's got their roles um, from optimization. Um, is there going to be surgery or not? Uh, imaging to confirm the diagnosis, orthopedic consults. Uh, we do them there right there in the ER. So We've got it there, and then the plan is made. What's what's kind of going through the medical team's mind here? So sometimes we don't know that. Um, where I am, we are involved a little bit in, in ER visits, and we get consulted at the ER. Probably not on one of these cases because they know what's going on. Um, but they're going to come in. What they're looking at is where a where's the fracture? Where did it happen? Is it is it the, is it the head? Does it involve the acetabulum? Is it just the femoral neck or what they call intracapsular? So if you can remember back to anatomy class, where the capsule is and kind of goes around the if you think of the, when you find your your greater trochanter on your hip and kind of look, but inside that's the capsule. So kind of from the trochanter in towards the head, we call that intercapsular. Um, and also, if you remember, that's a, a cancellous kind of bone. It's a little more spongy area bone, usually the weakest spot anyway. You know, you get down into the femoral shaft, it's more dense. So look and see where is the fracture. So is it intercapsular or extracapsular? Um, sometimes they'll call those subtrochanteric. So again, the, the trochanter is kind of, the definitive marker and you look below it and if it's more of a spiral or a displaced fracture um, below the trochanter that's going to be managed a different way so then what you look at and okay how can we manage to repair the fracture and I guess the first question is even are we going to repair the fracture 
um, and that's where screenings go in initially. Um, and a lot of it has to do with dementia, um, living and life status before that, uh, comorbidities. You know, is this a patient who has a terminal cancer? And they've been going through chemotherapy and they're quite frail medically um, anyway. Um, and then potential for functional rehabilitation afterwards. Um, and then also putting them through the surgery and what, what's the benefit to it? Because there are, are times where it's certainly um, appropriate to not do the surgery to do pain management and you even within you know palliative care consults certainly talking with um, family members um, loved ones etc to make the best decision of what's here um, but but more often than not it's it's safer in the long term if you do some kind of a repair even if it's just to um, make it so that the person can can transfer um, more easily and they're going to have some acute pain but long-term pain reduction is better um, if you can repair it even giving basic function where they're not completely dependent mobility. Because, of course, if we do that, now you're you know, setting them up for decubitus ulcers and systemic problems and you know, potentially sepsis in the future. And, of course, that's, that's the thing they look at here, too, because if you, if you break the, the bone here in the hip, there's a fair amount of bleeding inside. Um, so they certainly do sepsis screenings and start all those things. So that's what's happening there in, in the ER, um, determining that, kind of making a long-term prognosis decision already. Um, they're going to bring in orthopedics for, for opinions on that. Certainly going to talk with the family. Um, typically, this is a point where we get consults using physical therapists. We're going to be involved here. Um, now they're maybe in the acute care floors. This is a nice time to do some of the preoperative education if you can. Um, what we get, we get a consult on people with the fracture. It's actually part of the order set, so we get a consult to see them. Now, surgery may be you know later that day or, or the next morning. Um, it's nice if you can go there to see them, at least visit with the family. That's a better time to do some of your preoperative training, preoperative education before the anesthesia kicks in so we can discuss and kind of get the, the picture um, from the person, from the family, um, caregivers. You know, what was the, what's the status at home? What's the, the living situation? Um, what's the goal long term? And mostly you want to assess here cognitive status. Now, granted, they're going to be in pain. And there's going to be a lot of anxiety, but you try and figure out that stuff before they come out of anesthesia, and then you try and figure all those things out too. So what we try and get in there preoperative if we can. So again, recommendations are that surgery would happen within 24 to 48 hours if it's going to happen. Multiple different things you can do here. Um, intracapsular fractures, so inside of that inside that capsule, you know, femoral neck, um, head are are most often repaired by a hemiarthroplasty is actually recommended. Um, certainly that matters if you have a, a fracture that's complex and it's, you know, where the, the shaft, the, 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 the um, arthroplasty component is going to have to go down into the shaft and it's going to be cemented. So you have to have, have pretty good bone down there. Remember, you're dealing with osteoporosis in general. Um, so certainly if it's not going to be soft enough to hold it, then you would do pin and screws. But when at all um, possible, you like to do a hemiarthroplasty here. For some people, it makes sense to go ahead and do a a total hip as well. All depends on the acetabulum, what's going on. But um, I'll tell you, functionally, if they can be converted into just a total hip replacement, because um, then you're going to have immediate weight bearing, pain is going to be a little bit less, um, and, and, and the function is going to be better um, if that can happen. So sometimes the, the patient's a little hesitant. They go, well, I broke my hip, and now I have a replacement. We have to say, yeah, that's actually long-term. It's better. You don't have the weight bearing restrictions and the long must be better for you. But of course, that's entirely dependent on the fracture and the bone density. You know, if you have soft bones, it's, it's not going to hold. Um, so other, other types of fractures, if they're sub-subtrochanteric, that's going to be done with either a sliding screw 
or a pin as well because you have nothing to anchor the prosthesis to. So certainly the old overreduction internal fixation certainly has its role here. It all depends on the location um, of the fracture. So of course if that happens you're going to have some weight bearing limitations uh, and pain afterwards and dealing with cognitive status I often uh, tell, tell people and and some other courses that I teach, you know, one of your, your least favorite patients to, to walk in the room with is, you know, your, your 85-year-old sweet little grandma, and she um, maybe has some dementia, and now she's confused, and she's, she's scared as well, and the family is scared, and we've, you know, put the pin and the screws in there, and her hip is stable, and it's, it's hurting, and then we, have, we come in, and our job's, you know, mobility and transfers, and we're going to be getting out of bed and doing all these things, and then you have to say, okay, you can only be, you know, touchdown weight-bearing or non-weight-bearing or and you have to you know, use this walker and stand, and well, don't touch your foot on the ground, and don't put this down there. Um, and it's just very hard to do. Um, I will tell you, most of them go ahead and they put some weight on, and they seem to hold, but um, you're going to have a lot more limitations um, there for four to six weeks while the thing heals. Again, you remember, you're dealing with an osteoporotic bone, which is soft anyway, and you have to uh, give the thing plenty of time to heal and be thinking you know, long-term um, where do I want this person to be in six months, not just the first couple of days. So... Um, we don't get in a huge rush there for a lot of ambulation, although we certainly do as much as they can. So that's where some of the decisions are made. And then there's, there's things that medically they have to do to optimize in both cardiac status, um, medications that they're used. Um, the types of analgesia is the big one. I mean, we want to minimize any post-operative dementia, delirium, so whether it's spinal blocks or local things. And what are we going to do with some narcotics? There is a, there is a role oxycodone and things still there immediately but of course you know we want to get off of those as soon as we can um, because of side effects and it's a what's called a multimodal analgesia you'll see you know a, a combination of medicines used both um, oral um, intravenous kind of things that are used um, some local blocks if they can do it'd be more likely maybe a psoas type of block that's here um, some different types of spinal analgesia are actually not recommended um, here, you don't want anything where they're completely numb because you don't want to affect motor function. You know, you want to just do sensory blocks if you can. So they can be more sensory nerves and dorsal root kind of blocks instead of just full-on analgesia from a spinal. So typically even like an epidural, here they, you, you would like to avoid. Um, that has to do with, with motor function. I mean, you want to, we're, we're, the idea, and we'll get to this with later, is we want to have these people up and moving, ideally um, same day as surgery. So we want to have, you know, motor function down. We want to have the muscles to contract. We want them to feel from the waist down. Um, we'll manage the pain locally. We're going to be putting weight on this. You know, we don't want to completely numb you with a, with a spinal epidural either. But every every decision you make, and I think you'll, you'll see it from this, is planning with the, the next phase of care from the, the ER to what's next, the surgery decisions of what's next, what's going to optimize their recovery, um, getting them going. So now here we are, they've had the surgery, um, they're out of the recovery room, back into a regular room, and it's maybe a couple hours after the surgery, and then you know, where, where does the therapy start then? What's the role of nursing? What are we doing there? Well, a couple of the things, first of all, is, you know, they've had the surgery, now we want to you know, do DVT prevention, so venothromboembolism prevention stuff. Um, that, I mean, it's as simple as the, the they're going to have the compression stockings on their legs. Um, sequential pumps are going to be there, but the big one really is let's get the muscles moving, um, let's get some, some flexing of muscles from the waist down, particularly the calf muscle. Um, I like to do this actually resisted um, instead of just, you know, the ankle, standard old ankle pumps in the bed. I actually will, will manually resist it. I'll teach family members how to do it. I'll get a little piece of TheraBand and actually resist it. We're just flexing the calf muscle on your own goes a long way. But again, the big thing is we want to get them moving out of bed. 
Uh, recommendation is that they be mobilized, but all possible, uh, on post-op day zero. Um, so we try and get in the same day. It may be in, end of the day, 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and everybody's wanting to go home, but we get in there and go anyway and do it. Um, big recommendation that we do, too, is that um, we don't have nursing wait for therapy to come get them out of bed. Uh, we like to have anybody can be trained to mobilize them, get them out of bed, sitting on the side. Uh, goal would be that after surgery, you know, your next meal, whether it be your dinner or whatever, is actually done sitting up and out of bed. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, goal that, a goal that we have. Not always met. It's by no means a perfect world. It depends on timing and staffing, all kinds of things. But the goal is the earlier they can be mobilized. Um, I'll tell you, that goes a long way in reducing fear and anxiety um, to, to to lie in there in bed and just thinking about it. Um, you sit on the side and then they realize that, hey, I, I moved and yeah, it hurt, but you know, it, it's okay. Um, I moved, I actually stood on it on the first day and I was able to sit in a chair. And so I, I would tell you that decreases a little bit of that anxiety. You know, this is going to be okay. Um, it hurts like heck. It really does. Um, but I stood up and I could support myself. The muscles contracted and, you know, I've got this staff around me that's here um, to help me uh, to get going. So, of course, we try and do post-op day zero. Um, bladder management things is a big concern here. Um, avoidance of Foley catheters, you'll, you'll see that. Uh, WIC devices that are in there, things like that we like to do, uh, whether it be even just, just a transfer to a bedside commode, that kind of stuff um, go, goes on there. So therapies there, what's our assessments look like? Again, we try and do a post-op day zero. We even shoot for within, you know, four to six hours of surgery if we can be there. Now, if that doesn't time up right, it's going to be, you know, first thing on, we're going to move in like first case the next morning as well. Um, because long-term, what recommendation is going to be is on weekdays is we're going to try to do these people a, a BID frequency. I know a lot of things go into that, but we're going to try and offer at least twice a day um, to have them moving, doing some exercises in bed, sitting up, standing, we're going to head that way um, as far as we can. So where do we start? We like to start, we just do, we just go through an assessment. You have to take range of motion, particularly quad strength, glute strength, what kind of muscles you got flexing here. Range of motion to, to an extent, um, but it's not going to matter quite as much here. We're going to modify that stuff. It's going to be stiff. It's going to be sore, but are the muscles flexing? Um, can they bend? Can they roll a little bit? Can they get to one side? Um, how much assistance they need in bed mobility. Um, there's a lot of exercises you can do in bed. Rolling's a great one for the trunk and the torso. Um, a little, you know, kind of assisting with a little even modified bridge. You kind of hold their feet and just get them flexing their lower back. Get them moving a little bit. Um, we're going to sit them on the side. We're going to go through the uh, impact six clicks and just get an idea of, of where they are and start doing some scoring and planning based on that. Um, gate, gate speed and velocity. So that may have happened the first day. You know, that it might be that they stand and it's a pivot to a chair and you got that. But along the way, we're going to start doing gait assessments. Of course, assisted devices. This is mostly going to be walkers um, when they do it just in the room. You know, it can get 5 feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, all these kind of distances that are all planning for the next phase and where they're going to be. You know, the, the, the further you can walk in the first couple of days, or you're more likely to, to be home sooner, of course, or in outpatient settings. And if you can't, um, then we make our discharge criteria based on that. A lot of it has to do with level assistance needed. I mean, are you, you, you max assisted to, to transfer and even to stand and, you know, walking five feet is, is completely wiping you out, or you're going to have a little longer term rehabilitation most likely than, uh, than somebody else. So a lot of simple things that all of us have done for years that, that go into those. So what are we going to do with them? It's, um, this is based on 
guideline recommendations from the APTA, and to to me, just some it's more of some common sense. But you, um, it should be daily structured. It's actually recommended that they be offered daily exercise, high intensity resistive strength, and that gets a little that that gets a little trickier, controversial here. But what is high intensity resistive strengthening? You know, day one post op hip fracture. Um, well, I would offer that it's not just um, quad sets and glute sets. Um, it may be, but just pumping them, squeezing them. Now, what, what I even do here, and I, I talk, we'll talk later when we get into exercise prescriptions and talk about, you know, repetition, maximum testing, and all those kind of things that sometimes are, are thought about being just, you know, in the, the gym setting or you do a one rep max test. And I ask people in courses, I'm like, when was the last time you did a one rep max test, you know, post-op day one or post-op day two on somebody and you get kind of a, deer in the headlights um, testing, but it can be as simple as how long, what, what's, what's the actual strength they have right now? Right? It can be as simple as have them do an isometric, you know, maybe against pressure, something like that, you know, quad set, but pushing against you, and then have them maintain it just as long as they can and, and time it, you know, because exercise prescription, um, we want to be working to build strength, but we want to be working at about 60 to 70% of a one repetition maximum, you know, eight to twelve set, eight to twelve reps, two to three sets. That's kind of the the, the mid range. There's lots of set rep schemes you can get into, but you look in here. Um, instead of just you know thirty ankle pumps and thirty glute sets, quick pumps. Actually, have them do one, and time it. How long can they actually maintain a muscle contraction? And say it's you know they can actually do it for fifteen to twenty seconds. Why well, kind of backtrack from that? So I'll have you maybe you would do a a glute a glute set exercise, a quad set. Now maybe just hold it. As firm as you can, as long as you can, and I'll time it. And let's say you got to, to 20 seconds. Then my prescription for you is going to be, okay, you held it for 20 seconds. Let's see, about 60% of that, we're going to say maybe about 12 seconds. So I'm going to have you try a few of those in a row. I want you to hold each one at least 12, 13 seconds. And so we'll do through a few of those. I'm shooting for maybe we can get to that first day eight of those in one set, you kind of assess how they're feeling. And that's the way you can take strength parameters and actually be sure that we're dosing them. I think across the board, I think in therapy, we, we underdose people. And I certainly think in this setting um, as well with some of these people, we are, our, our bias is a bit to underdose them. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, 20 repetitions post-op day zero, but in that first couple of days, so that first week, to, to look at and find out what's actually their maximum right now. What can they do? And that can be as simple as a time. Um, if they can sit on the side of the bed, you can have them do just like a long arc quad lift. Maybe put a small weight on there and see, okay, can you actually lift one pound and how long can you hold it there? Um, so I, I advocate timing it. Um, we're probably not pulling out our handheld dynamometers there in the acute care setting, but I would encourage all of you to be a little more specific on exercise prescription and dosing. Um, you know, not just, you know, two sets of 10 and you just flex and hold. I think um, flexing them is fine um, for circulation. I think just, you know, squeeze and pump and squeeze and pump and thinking that is pumping blood. That's okay. But if you actually want to build some strength, you can start early. And I think we can be more specific and actually dosing that for people. So certainly that's some, you know, bed-based exercises, kind of warm-up things, base strengthening stuff. But again, we mostly want to be doing here with all patients is strengthening for specific function. So what's the most functional thing that these people need to be able to do? Well, to move around and get out of the bed, for first of all, um, and then be able to stand at the side safely. 
So I'll start even just, you know, trunk rolling in bed, going side to side, modified bridging things, just starting there in the bed um, to move because we want to get them, you know, as independent as we can uh, with bed mobility. Make those into some exercises right there. You know, it doesn't have to be just, you know, quad sets and hip abduction and open chain kind of things. Remember that the body functions um, closed chain. So, you know, maybe a lot of straight leg raises uh, isn't the best thing to do. Uh, maybe rolling to the side and then uh, sit to stands is some of my favorite things to do right there in the acute care setting is I just do repeated sit to stand um, up and down. We stand, we balance a little bit, and we come back down, really incorporating weight bearing through the joint, muscle co-contraction, and I'll just repeat them, you know. Uh, that's another place you can find what's a 1RM, you know, what's their, what's their sit to stand, what can they do. Um, time it if you want. Like how many times can you come up and down in a minute? You know, how much assistance do they need? And then re repeat that and maybe, okay, you got you got three of them there. So we'll do like three sets of three of just a, a sit-to-stand exercise. Um, I would offer that that's better strengthening because it's a closed chain thing for them. Um, it's muscle co-contraction, it's glutes, it's quads, it's everything working together um, versus just, you know, laying in bed and can you do 15 straight leg raises and 15 ankle pumps. Um, so I'm all, I'm all for getting their feet on the ground um, as soon as we can. Um, as safely as we can, because that's the way the body functions, is standing. Um, transferring over, you know, even as simple as a bedside commode. Again, I mentioned earlier, we want to minimize the use of Foley catheters um, as best we can. Uh, they can have pure wick devices, but again, just, you know, we get to the bedside commode, or ultimately, um, on and off the toilet is going to be better in the long term. Um, maybe simpler to use the Foley catheters. Some of the patients maybe want to do that, or it's, it's simpler for us, it's simpler for the nursing staff, but is it actually better in the long run for the patient. Of course, these are typically women, and we know the longer a catheter is in anybody, risk of uh, infections goes up, and, and UTIs are already very common things in this patient population anyway, so let's not uh, do anything where we increase the, the risk of that. So as far as, you know, the ability to, to stand up a couple of times with minimal assistance to a bedside commode so the catheter can come out if you had one in there, that's a, that's a huge thing in this first acute care phase um, of exercise. Or something we want to have them walking, you know, there in their hospital room to the hallway if they can. Um, everything kind of predicting is where's the, the next step uh, for this. That's where we work with the entire team. We're going to be with case management, nursing, surgeons, et cetera. It may not be a whole full team conference, maybe a rehab setting you do, but oftentimes on the acute care floors, maybe there's a huddle. You know, maybe you, you're communicating the case manager and he or she is kind of like the, the team captain for everybody and what's going on. Um, certainly make sure it's in your notes so everybody has um, what your recommendations are or a plan and what's the, the next stage. Is this going to be home? Is this going to be back to assisted living facility? Is this going to be a long-term care? Um, a lot of times here with acute fractures, even when they're converted, this is a great place for inpatient rehab um, um, documentation and, and making sure you can get them accepted there. And we have a fair number of people that, you know, you have a Elective hip replacement, you're not going to really qualify for an inpatient rehab stay. Um, if it's due to a fracture, that could be great. Especially if you can document all the way back from the beginning. If this person was living independent. They were driving in the community. Um, they were actually maybe were still employed. They did their own grocery shopping, and now they had this fracture. Those are certainly the criteria that a, a case manager and a reviewer and insurance company is willing to see documented um, to justify why is actually maybe an inpatient rehab level of stay um, is appropriate here and then two or three weeks there to, to return home because they were so independent you know it's so it's all those things that start or we have a role in documenting what could they do where are they now and what is actually their prognosis to get back to and I always like to to not short short change the, the patient you know 
err on the side of they're, they're going to work hard. They're going to do well. Um, they want to get back to that level of living. So before we move on to the next phase, <clears throat> I just want to quickly summarize um, big picture. Acute care setting, uh, what are some of the recommendations? What are we, what are we trying to do here? <clears throat> I guess it mostly comes down to being proactive uh, from, from the day they come in, the, from the moment they come in the hospital. Um, order sets, I mean, ours are in, in the ER. We get, we get the therapy consults when the person's even still in the ER. Um, we do the best thing we can. Of course, it depends on time and day you come in uh, to, to see you preoperatively, at least meet with the person, meet with their families, um, try and get the picture of what did this person um, look like, what was their ability before the fracture. So we start our discharge planning right there. Um, it's also a great time preoperatively to set the stage for both the family and uh, the patient. They, certainly if they are, they're, they're, in, they're in pain, they've got a lot of things going on. But setting the stage of what is therapy, what's the rehab going to look like, um, that we are quite likely going to be wanting you to get moving uh, day of surgery or certainly the morning post-op day one. Um, recommendations are to be up and out of bed, uh, to have meals. Um, so, so it's not a shock to them. And certainly um, when our surgeons uh, support that as well. You get people, especially older folks, they, they tend to still do uh, whatever the surgeon says, uh, he or she. Uh, so the therapist comes and we talk to and, you know, our, our credibility is with the surgeon. If you've got your surgeon saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Here's how we're going to do the anesthesia. Um, our expectation is you're going to recover fairly quickly. And then, uh, you know, that, that day I'd like you to be moving, sitting on the side of the bed, you know, standing at the side of the bed. And then certainly uh, breakfast the next day, meals. We want you to have meals out of bed. Um, so if everybody is encouraging early mobility, uh, they're talking about, you know, you may have a catheter, but we're going to try and get that out as quick as we can. As long as we set the stage um, ahead of surgery, then, when, you know, when we when we walk in, because, you know, if you've worked acute here very long, you know a lot of times uh, you walk in the room and introduce yourself and, like, the eyes roll and you get the groan and, oh, here's the therapist and they're going to make me do all this. But if you get somebody that's already expecting it, uh, that can go a little better. So we're going to focus on with them. Let's well, do functional things, you know, rolling in bed. Maybe it's a bridge. Maybe it's it's things which muscle contractions that way. Um, not just a lot of open chain leg swings. Um, getting onto the edge of the bed, getting on their feet. A number of studies have been done. Looking at the main thing to do is to sit to stand motion. Um, just put the weight on the ground and stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. Uh, frequency of this. Um, more is more is better. Um, some some work I've been reviewing lately. Um, this is from a couple years ago out of uh, Australia. Laura Kimmel did this uh, on a bunch of patients there, and they actually were recommending three sessions a day in the acute care phase. Now again, that's a little different system, um, and certainly internationally, it's it's a different focus. They're going to be in the hospital a little bit longer, and they are, are, are different things on rehab that has to do with, of course, payers and and financial considerations um, that are made in different systems around the world. But again, higher frequency is better and get their feet on the ground. Uh, we try and do at least a BID and then once a day on the weekends. Um, I understand those are staffing dependent, but understand that them, even if it's a, a short session, of, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes in the morning and then maybe 15 minutes around lunch and then another, you know, 15 to 20 minutes later in the day, um, I would offer that that's probably more beneficial here than maybe a, a 35, 40 minute session you know, early in the morning, and then they're, the rest of the day they're either just sitting or they're, they're lying in bed. So those are all considerations um, to make. So now we are we're moving on to the, the next phase, and then where is this person going to be going, and then long-term, what is this? So healing considerations, you know, you've got to 
the bone, you've got it, you've got it fixed. The, the pin, the plates. Maybe it was a, if it was a arthroplasty, of course, you don't have to worry too much about the healing because the glue set there. But talking more um, pins, plates, sliding screws for kind of those sub subtrochanteric fractures, uh, things like that. Again, you're you're dealing with a bone probably that's pretty soft. So you know, typical fracture healing time six, seven, eight weeks. Um, you, you can you see a new callus formation. It's probably gonna be a little slower here. Um, of course, you know, weight bearing activity encourages that. Um, does does help with with bony growth and the the callus formation, new cells coming in. So that's once you're looking there. But of course, the, the thing is stabilized. It's got pins and screws through it. Um, so we want to get them. We want to get them walking and moving. So hopefully uh, heading out of the hospital. Um, so then we made the case for inpatient rehab on the acute fractures as well. But maybe depending on their, you know, premorbid status, functional ability, um, that's going to dictate a lot of, of what's what's happening next. So they're ready to leave the acute care floor. This may be, you know, day two, day three, day four. It certainly varies. Um, where are we going to next? What's the recommendations? Again, that's based on what they could do before. Um, Aaron on the side of let's be proactive and, and encouraging here and try and get the best outcome. So say we're going up to um, the inpatient rehab floor. What 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 should happen there? Well, that's certainly medically. Um, this is everybody kind of, I guess, whenever you have a, a fracture, any kind of injury, we do this you know, with stroke care, any kind of thing in the hospital. This is where you kind of do a, a debriefing or a, a post hoc analysis. Let's look and Say, okay, what, what were the contributing factors here um, to this? Was it medication? Was it just uh, accidental fall in the fracture? Was it you know, pathological fracture? Was it, you know, is it the osteoporosis? What is the bone density? Um, what can we do here going forward to prevent this again? Like I said, we do the same thing um, with strokes. Anything we have as you kind of look and say, okay, what do we want to do so that this is the only time this happens? Um, what are the diet things? What are medications that, that need to be on board? Um, biophosphonates, um, vitamin D. All those kind of things. Certainly, side effects with some of those, and that's more um, medical side. We actually do recommendations. We have uh, fracture clinics uh, in, our, in our Charleston hospitals that we use. I'm at one of our smaller hospitals, and we don't. So that kind of falls in the lap of orthopedists um, and to the family practice doctors. Certainly, we give them. They, they get guidance um, from from protocols and guidelines that we have. But it's medication things that can do that. Let's say here we're on the inpatient rehab floor. We'll start using those medications actually on the rehab floor. We have the physicians there that everybody is on the same page, and we can start getting the medicines going, um, dietary things, and just encouraging that and saying, okay, here's here's where we need to be with bone density, you know, medications that are going to help you. But what do we as therapists do? Well, we're going to be working on screening on what what, what happened here. Was this just a balance thing? Is it is it vision? Um, is it an assistive device that you needed that you don't want to use, you never did? Was it just an accidental trip? Um, was it a slip, fall, and kind of go over that and talk with, you know, what's the situation? What do we do to prevent that again? I mean, to get you better on steps? Is it living conditions? Or was it, I often say, was it just purely an accidental one that went down? So the main things we want to do is we want to get um, strength. We want to get we want to get strong, strong butts and strong thighs. Um, we're going to be working on reaction time kind of things. Standing, you know, you're going to be in parallel bars, moving, being up on your feet often. Um, I'm not a on the inpatient rehab floor. I'm not a huge advocate of a lot of mat exercises uh, for these folks, unless it's just issues with pain and you want to get some mobility. But if we're we're timing things well, and we always 
you know, work with the nurses of what time we have, you know, the schedules, everything's um, detailed out. We try and follow as best we can. You want to try and time, okay, what medicine is they getting and when. Um, and if they haven't had the medicine, you know, I have, we have the flexibility to, to see different people and come back because you do want to optimize um, when, when they have pain relief because um, we're going to be exercising and we're going to be doing for, for that age, that stage of person. This is going to be a fairly high intensity for them um, that they may not be used to. Um, certainly they could be older. And so you know, bearing with what is high intensity in this population. And so, you know, it's not the same as you're going to see maybe an outpatient setting, but you do want to be, be working fairly hard, get the muscles contracting, um, doing some steps, stepping up and down, um, repeated sit-to-stands. Again, I'm not going to I'm going to harp on that over and over, but just the ability to sit to stand, sit to stand, um, to build confidence in that, to build strength. Uh, a big a big predictor in falls that happens, especially after this, and I, I talk with this with patients I do balance training with all the time, um, is that we do, we're trying to build confidence, um, decrease fear, decrease anxiety as best we can in you. The, the fear of mobility, fear of a fracture again, or just fear of falling um, is a, a big issue here that I think that the way, I mean, how do you get over fears that you have? I mean, I talk about, you know, you're afraid of the water when you were young or you're, you know, when you're afraid of the dark or how do you do fears? Well, graded exposure um, is how we do it, whether it's with pain, you know, long-term pain management, but how do you address that? How do you address chronic kind of issues? Well, it's graded exposure over time to something that is scary. And I always tell them, you know, I will, when we do balance things, I'll, I'll, I'll let you wobble. Um, I do want to work on reaction time. I will not let you fall but I am all for letting you wobble. You know, if I'm always just holding on to you, or you're always just, you know, in a harness, or you're always just holding on to the parallel bars and everything's um, 100% safe, I would offer that you're not really going to be making gains in strength or your ability to, to balance yourself. Um, and I, I tell them in a very nice way that um, we're going to do some things that are going to be a little scary. And I actually want that. I want to expose you to some things that you're afraid of because you that's the only way you, you know, kind of can work through those and then build a little confidence in yourself. So those are all the overriding things to do is you want strengthening, you want to be close chain. Um, remember to do your dosing. And I said it could be your rep max test if you have to do the isometrics and non-weight bearing things. But once they're up on their feet is then you can do a, a 10 rep max or a 12 rep max, that kind of thing. Is you know, how long does it take to, to do sit to stands or you know, how many can you do in 30 seconds? And long-term, you get to an outpatient setting. Those are certain uh, strength criteria, and there's there's benchmarks based on age. And just to give you those, it's most people that are over 70. Long-term, what's considered normal strength is they can do 12 sit-to-stands uh, in 30 seconds. So that's certainly a, a long-term goal, and there's all kinds of benchmarking criteria. Um, again, for, for, for balancing, you'll read, you'll read different things on like what's a normal Romberg balance, and some things will say 30 seconds uh, for the general population, that is. But as you get older, you know, if you can do a Romberg for 10 seconds, that's good reaction time. Single limb stance, um, some studies say, you know, the ability to do a single limb stance for 10 seconds long term, that goes a long way in, in correlating with a lower risk of a fall. Um, now certainly some of these people haven't stood on one foot for 10 seconds in probably 30 years. Um, but I think it's something you can work backwards to work towards. Um, as you get into your more elderly population, that, that goes down. If they can even do five seconds, um, your fall risk goes way down too. So incorporating um, balance things can be as simple as Rombergs and, and single limb stance, you know, in a uh, in the parallel bars. 
There's other exercises too that you, you see a lot. And this is more, I guess, home setting or we do an inpatient rehab. And I, 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 I of course, I do primarily my work as an outpatient. So I usually am catching people further down the road, you know, weeks after surgery, once they're home, something like that. Or at least I hope that I do. Um, I guess that's a, a point here to talk about. A lot of times after hip surgeries, particularly if it's maybe the hemiarthroplasty um, from the fracture, people are in, encouraged to, you know, the main thing you got to do is you just need to walk. You just need to walk. You just need to walk. And while I agree with that, um, it's the most functional thing that the human body does. Um, so many times over my career, and I've seen this borne out in, in studies, when you get into um, looking at things of long-term um, risk factor of falls and even even back pain, I often say, you know, I see a lot of people that show up after they've had a hip surgery, you know, a year after um, the fracture, but I'm seeing them because they have back problems now. And I often can trace that back, too, and just doing, doing strength testing on them is they just never got all the, the hip strength back. Um, well, granted, you've had a fracture, maybe it'll never be 100%, but they never um, were, were pushed. They never were taught how to do exercises at a, a good dose to actually build strength. And so here they, they manifest themselves weeks, months, or even a year later, and they have problems with walking still, their balance is off, um, and they're showing up because they have a back problem. And so I, there's also a strong correlation with uh, hip strength and just general low back strength and their back pain. So I, I encourage early on to dose appropriately and to work on actually building strength in a closed chain way. And what else does that look like? So, you know, the, the classic, you know, standing at the kitchen counter and doing your hip abduction and flexion and extension, all those kind of things. And then um, I, I love to, I go over the people and I say, okay, you know, you've been doing home care here for a couple of weeks and what are we doing? You know, you've been on the inpatient, you know, what you've been doing. And they stand up and they are swinging their operative leg all over and they you know, stand, they can swing it and they can, you know, they can do 20, 30. Oh, I've been doing my leg lifts. So I can swing this back and swing this forward. Look how good this is. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's nice. Um, have you ever done it where you actually stand on that leg? Uh, many, many times they're like, well, well, no, they didn't have me do that. And so um, I, I would encourage you to, you know, the kitchen counter exercises and the, the, the sink exercises are cool, but I'm going to spend most of your time standing on the leg you had surgery on. I don't care. Even if you can only do, you know, three, four, five of them um, lifting the non-operative leg, <clears throat> that's way more functional than the long run it is. So usually that's when I switch them. I say, yeah, you can keep doing that, but let's stand on the other leg. And then they go, oh, that's, oh, that's harder. That's harder. And I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to be. You're not going to be able to do as many, and that's okay. So simple things like that that um, I find that I do have to, I, I remind people of um, a lot, um, whether it's the therapists or the assistants that was working with them that I find that issue. So <clears throat> fast forward now, maybe we're, we're out of inpatient rehab, you know, we're walking pretty good, uh, maybe with a walker, um, you know, doing 150 feet, 200 feet, something like that, you know, household distances. You've worked on your stairs, able to go up and down with them, you're getting a little more confidence, um, and then you're going home. Uh, far too often, that's where the therapy ends, um, or maybe there is a, a couple of home care visits. And of course, everywhere in the country, you know, that's limited to time, frequency, sessions. Of course, there's so many factors that go into how we see them from, you know, population density to just geography, where you are in the country. Um, when I used to do home care, I worked in the in the South Charlotte area. So, of course, you know, you had, I could I could see, you know, four patients within the, the two miles of each other. You know, so you can do a lot more. I certainly am respectful of um, areas that are more rural than that, 
and um, we do work in a, a rural area around here as well, where you know it's it's you know you might get four people in a day because they all live a half an hour apart to drive to each one. So um, those things are there. So that's where home exercises, um, education, family, caregivers. Maybe it's somebody that's got a uh, in-home caregiver that's been hired by the family that's going to be with them. Um, teaching all those people, um, and there's lots of things um, that can go into this. Actually, a, a nice study again. I was looking at. Um, the other day out of out of New Zealand and it was exactly that kind of a rural thing and partly this was in hospital but certainly this would extrapolate over to the home care environment and it was um, doing exercises teaching um, people who aren't aren't therapists like how to do it and they were using nurses they were using you know physical therapy students um, I've worked with over my career a number of um, in-home care aides um, just helping them to, to you know remind you know Miss Jones here of the exercises and here's how we can do it and even you know teaching them how to do contact guard assistance or simple things like make sure you have a chair behind you when you do this but there's lots of people that um you can encourage and empower to, to help people with the exercises and a lot of times here it's going to be just reminding them you know a lot of times the the job of the, the home care aid in the home it's medication reminders it's food reminders it can be exercise reminders you know have you done your couple exercises here and again frequency during the day carries over here again i mentioned the the studies um out of australia um, on this one to show, you know, three sessions a day um, made a significant change from, from day one on. So again, what are we going to have them doing when they're at home um, with this? And I'm going to tell you that um, higher frequency is, is still better. Um, it's still better. Instead of, you know, you know 30 repetitions once a day, uh, spread that out. And again, we're, we're trying, to, trying to dose appropriately, trying to figure out, you know, what is your what your maximum and trying to give you an actual dose of exercise that whole you know about 60 percent of your max two to three sets eight to 12 times so maybe that's you get your you get your three sets in of eight but you do that three different sessions a day instead of trying to you know plow through and i got to get three sets of 12 in my first session and then i'm exhausted for three days because i'm worn out um spread those out higher frequency um is, is better here but you want to get that same kind of volume of load you know, you're working like three sets of 12, but spread that over a day. It's certainly more tolerable. Um, time it with pain medication. So same kind of things we did in acute care, they carry over here as well. To, to timing, make sure you've taken your medicines. Um, you know, you're going to use ice after it. Some of this stuff is going to make you sore. I'm going to have that discussion with patients about muscle soreness versus pain. Um, that, that soreness, you know, because you, if you haven't been active before, know some muscle soreness um, initially when you're doing a little higher intensity maybe you've added some in some new exercises um, is, is normal and it's actually a little bit desirable um, and talking the difference certainly we don't want to be increasing the pain they're having so the talking where it is and kind of getting ideas of just you know is it just in the glute muscles or is it actually around the groin side is it running down the leg certainly we will um, vary what we're doing then but a little bit of soreness i actually i, I encourage that and when i talk to him about it, I'm, i do it in a positive way like actually that's good you know that's the that's the stimulus um to build to build the muscle is some of that that's going on um now if they're if they're remaining uh, the muscle soreness you know they've been doing things for two or three weeks then i'm probably certainly overdosing them so um, I, i've talked here about dosing of exercise and i think our bias is we underdose um so be mindful that we don't want to overdose either um I'm not advocating that. I'm not trying to be um, mean or aggressive here, but I do want to challenge people to, to, to push them a little bit um, because thinking more in my mind, where are they going to be you know, in three months or in six months? Um, I know it's sore today, but what are we going to get when you're, when you're down the road? 
Uh, you're going to have more confidence. You're going to walk better. You know, have less other problems, knee problems, back pain, things like that as you get further down the road. So how do we incorporate balance training and false preventions here? Um, and that's where we, you start again, you, you do a, a good assessment. Um, whether it's, there's, there's tons of ways you can do this stuff um, that we all have clinically. And now I'm, I'm guess I'm fast forwarding a little bit more into an outpatient setting and long-term uh, falls reduction kind of thing. So we're kind of getting that later phases of rehab, which again, I, I hope that we, we see them here. I mean, often here we're we're in the States and it's not always standard whether they, they get the orders or whatever. And, you know, they're doing the orthopedic follow-ups at one month and three months. And you try and communicate with that group and say, you know, let's not just stop the therapy because they're home and tell them all you need to do is walk because um, I think that's incomplete. So hopefully we are working some. This isn't a, a ton of visits later, but this is just in our, our general, you know, falls program. And you start with an assessment. Um, whether it's as simple as, you know, the, the 10 item, the Berg, the Berg balance assessment's been around for decades, um, highly validated here. Um, repeated sit-to-stands, you know, timed up-and-go tests, gait velocity tests, and actually getting a measurement um, to work from. So, you know, you have them in the clinic and say, how long does it take, you know, to walk this 50 feet or 100 feet or what's the distance you can do, but actually have a measurement. Um, so then you can set a goal and work backward to and share that with them, you know, say, here's where we are today. You know, if I compare this to the typical, you know, 80-year-old woman um, in the community, here's the speed. Now, you may not get to, you know, you know, 3.5 meters per second because you're here today and you're, you're walking. Okay, today you're at about, you know, 1.9 feet per second. They go, oh, wow, that's really slow. You go, yeah, it is, but just imagine if we make, if you got that to like 2.2 seconds, you need to make a 20% increase. You may never get to be as fast as some other people are. But what's faster or quicker for you? Um, and where that, that comes down to is a lot of times what, what happens with the fall with somebody. You know, it's the middle of the night. They've got to go to the bathroom, and they get in a hurry. But they're slow, and they get there. Just a simple thing, if we can build a little confidence, increase a little gate velocity, maybe that correlates to, you know, I, I'm not as rushed getting there because I can move and I, and I get to the bathroom. Um, or certainly being out in the community, how long does it take to actually, you know, uh, before walking somewhere and a, a light changes or I'm in a parking lot, how long does it take to get there? So giving them the standards and actually sharing that with them, giving them their timed up and go, here's your score today, here's how this correlates with fall risk. And it's, you know, uh, different ways to look at it, but the, the, the rule of thumb I go with, and this is other older research things, is I tell them, you know, this has been done on hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people throughout history, and the people that can do this simple timed up and go, if they, be, if they can get in 13 seconds or less, and then when we follow them for years after we do it, their likelihood of having another fall goes way down. And give them motivation like that. So, hey, today, you know, you did the timed up, you turn, you come back and sit down. It took you about 16 seconds. Let's see if over the next week maybe we don't get that to 15 and a half seconds or, or 15. And we're shooting for that goal that we're there. You know, this is the... The same kind of principle you would use maybe with an athlete or with a bodybuilder. You know, you got a pitcher who's wanting to go throw a higher velocity or a, an athlete who's wanting to run faster. Well, other than just saying, well, we we got to get faster, give them an actual measurable goal and compare them to other people where they want to be. You know, I want to be I want to be safe. I want to be confident. I want to have a lower risk of a fall. Well, what do those people who don't fall as often? What do they look like? Well, they have this much strength. They can do a sit-to-stand, you know, this many times, which the number is about 12. They can do a timed up-and-go in about 13 seconds, and their gait velocity is <clears throat> more than 3.2 feet per second. 
I just sent those. You know, if we achieve those goals, your your overall just statistical risk of having another fall for you know mechanical safety reasons is way down, and and use that as motivation for them. And certainly, there's you know medications and other risk factors that go with this, and you have to you know, assess vision. Um, I, I do that a fair number with people, and I'll have them come in for balance um, training, do a quick vision screen, check their glasses, and I ask them a question. You know, when was the last time that you had your glasses checked? You know, um, have you had your cataract surgeries? Um, things like that. Um, I do a fair number of things. I, I this is kind of a personal thing. My brother's an optometrist, and he does visual screenings, and he does things, all kinds of things for balance for us. So I really got exposed a few years back to a lot of the impact of the eyes um, and, and different lenses they can use. Because we have all these people that have, you know, balance, even dizziness kind of problems, and just nothing seemed to be helping. And we trace it back and find out that actually an underlying visual thing is there. Um, or it's, it's as simple as, you know, if you haven't had an eye exam, you know, in like five or six years, or when they have their glasses, but you've had the same glasses for 10 years, um, it's probably time for a change. Uh, get those things incorporated. And I've seen, you know, um, staggering changes in balance and confidence just by having somebody go to the, op- the optometrist or go to see your ophthalmologist, you know, get those things checked. Because, you know, I can have the greatest exercise in the world, but if the underlying thing is is vision or, you know, you have your bifocals on and the, the line is in the wrong place for you or the glasses, they don't fit and they slide down your nose. So now the lens is in the wrong place in the angle of your eye. And that's why you don't see well. Um, lots of things like that that we have to, to consider so it can be medication, it can be vision. Um, it ha- certainly we do we do strength, we do reaction time training, things like that. But looking at the whole person, and like I said, we go back to that, why did this fall happen? We do a, you know, it's kind of like when you have a, a crash or the, you know, the National Traffic Safety Board shows up and tries to piece together why did this plane crash and go back and then we make changes on how to improve that. It's the same, per- same thing with the, um, the person is why did this happen? And let's just go step by step. What can we do? to reduce those risks, um, and, and vision being one of them um, as well that goes here. So again, that's more your, your outpatient setting and being a comprehensive, multidisciplinary. You know, I said the, the disciplines and include vision, certainly the medical medical team, reviewing medications, um, cardiologists. Can there be some, some change in medications or timing or dosing, you know, um, orthostatic hypotension is a, a common thing that causes falls here. Um, we see that a lot. Um, of course, people they're on you know on blood thinners, on anticoagulants, they're on antiarrhythmics, all kinds of things for their heart. And, and stroke prevention is very common. And sometimes the you know the doses that was working you know six months or a year ago, um, and the, over time I, I tell people that sometimes that the medications take the blood pressure they can start to as you get a little older they can start to almost you know work too well. Um, or maybe you, you have had a weight gain or a weight loss, and now you need a dosage of the medicine um, correction. So certainly, as therapists, we want to be multidisciplinary, um, working with the team, with everybody that's involved, sharing sharing our notes. I mean, I, I routinely I do, you know, evaluations, and I, I um, send them, of course, the referring physicians. I ask them, that, who's your primary care doctor? You know, who's the cardiologist? And I'm going to just do a carbon copy, and of course, we you know digitally send notes over to them, um, and usually that's appreciated um, as to where we are. Encouraging people to keep their follow-up visits with cardiology, you know, ophthalmology, vision checks, you know, uh, geriatricians if they have that, uh, certainly um, rheumatologists if they're there, and people that are you know doing medication management um, for reduction. So we're coming close to the end of the time here, so I'm kind of going to do a, a summary overview again, and just kind of review what I've tried to cover here. I'm going to go back to the, uh, the 
the outline of the course and kind of hit a few of the highlights here and make sure we've done that. So um, we were, the, the original outline was going to do incidence of hip fracture mortality rates. Well, those, you know, running about 300,000 people a year seem to do it. Uh, mortality rates, um, some of them in the, in the first 30 days, uh, numbers, you'll see numbers 7, 8, 9%, unfortunately. Um, 60 days, that goes up to around 15% or so. It's even actually um, dead within 60 days, which is unfortunate. And usually that's a much more complex medical um, patient. But again, even that all-cause mortality, if you track them for, for one to two years, it's still hovering around 30%, um, um, unfortunately, um, in these folks. That's usually good for other medical reasons um, that happens. They just don't get their mobility back. What are the risk factors? Well, it's it's age, um, genetic factors, uh, osteoporosis certainly, and, and more, much more in females based on body structure, type, um, race, ethnicity. How do we mitigate those? Well, it's medication, and I'm a big proponent of, of exercise and strength training, you know, early in life. Um, I, I, I recommend that in, in younger women. Um, I think I think that, that um, osteoporosis prevention and, and reduction, I think I tell ladies that starts in your teenage years. Um, what you're doing there, what you do throughout your life from, from diet, you know, vitamin D, calcium, um, walking, resistance training, incorporating strength training throughout your lives. Um, when these do happen, the acute management of the fracture, it's, of course, there's really no reason to delay uh, the surgery. We want to fixate the, the bone as quick as we can, and there's multiple options for that. Um, hemiarthroplasties, total hips uh, at times as well, or depending on the location, it's the, the pin and screws and sliding screws. All it's, you know, intracapsular, you try and do a replacement if it's outside the capsule, or if you just, the bone is just too soft where the, the hemiarthroplasty components won't work, um, then you have to use something else. Um, early mobilization, you know, post-op day zero, if at all feasible, timing acute care things with medications, um, encouraging, you know, meals out of a chair. We want you up and on your feet. The, the adage you hear sometimes is, you know, we want everything out and everything up. We want catheters out. We want IVs out as soon as they can, and we want everybody up and moving. Um, this is good. The sooner is better. Um, High-frequency therapy. Actually, there's been plenty of research that says, you know, three sessions a day is great. Um, two, two a day is kind of high, highly encouraged, um, and maybe breaking those out instead of, you know, one 30-minute session, maybe you do two 15- to 20-minute sessions, you know, morning and evening, um, but mobilizing, standing, getting out of the bed, um, actually dosing, strength training there, you know, timing isometrics, that kind of thing that I talked about, and come up with the right exercise dose for these folks. The timelines, you know, here in the States, is probably going to be two, three, four days um, on acute care, and then possibly to inpatient rehab, possibly to assisted living, possibly back home, um, hopefully with outpatient therapy. That all certainly is predicated on the pre-morbid status um, of the patient. Uh, timelines here, you know, if you have the pen and screws in, then you're looking at fracture healing at six to eight weeks. Certainly that can be extended in the, the older uh, population if they have, you know, softer bones, less density as, as well. Um, if it's a hemiarthroplasty or a, a total hip, of course, it's glue, it's set. Um, full weight bearing there, you're really not waiting on healing other than, you know, surgical site healing. Whether well, the posterior incision, or you can, I mean, you can do an, an, an anterior approach on these as well. I mean, if you're doing a hemiarthroplasty, you know, on somebody, go ahead, and, and many more surgeons are making the anterior incision just like in total hips. And of course, we have recovery timelines when you do an anterior approach are, are uh, lightning fast because um, you don't really disrupt a lot of the musculature. So that's there. The long-term prognosis, well, again, there's, there's some factors that aren't modifiable, you know, um, gender, you can't modify that and some genetic components, but certainly you can do some things to try to mitigate that, both medication, uh, diet, and just weight-bearing exercise. And then ongoing fall reduction is actually measuring um, fall risk and why. 
whether it's gait velocity, timed up and go, repeated sit to, to stand, you know, basic Romberg testing, uh, single limb stance testing, or, or full on if you've got the ability, you know, full on balance master electronic things. We have one of those and, you know, the patients like to use those. Uh, we incorporate a, a, a Wii and video game systems in both our uh, rehab units. Those things have been around for a long time. Um, looked at many, many years ago, and, you know, incorporating a little bit of fun, a little bit of challenge, side-to-side um, -side motions, so any kind of things you can use like that, uh, technology here, uh, even, in, even in the home, you know, getting people, uh, say, you know, you're up and kind of doing like some Wii games, you may be standing by your walker, but, you know, you've got your grandson there helping you, you know, incorporate some, some fun into things that are uh, dynamic and changing direction, stuff like that, um, that you can do. For, for balance training. Again, the big thing there is, is building confidence. Um, give them this, the standards. Um, here's what we're shooting for as far as your overall fall risk reduction um, that we want to achieve. So hopefully that's been, been helpful. Um, enjoyed the time together. Um, so there's hip fractures. Trying to do that an hour. And that's a, a, a broad topic. Trying to hit a lot of different things here. Um, tons of resources out there. Um, and, and I encourage people always to, you know, look at things, you know, all around the world, different healthcare systems and, and things they're looking at because the, the human body is very much the same physically around the world, whether you're in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, across Europe, uh, parts like that, that it, it's, it's great to learn from other systems and what they're doing because uh, the body heals much the same way when it's bones and muscles. Um, we have a lot to learn from each other and, and different systems. So I always encourage that. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.